When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Live Forever edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I am Felix Salmon of Fusion. I am joined as ever by Kathy O'Neill, the data scientist and author of Weapons of Math Destruction. Hello, Felix. And calling in from the distant climb of Austin, Texas, is Jordan Weissman. Thankfully, we do have the technology for me to connect and share this wonderful morning with you guys. So we are going to be devoting this entire episode to, well, living forever. You know that thing that vampires do? (laughs) (laughs) I need to tell the story because on Thursday night, Last week, I went to the opera because I'm a sophisticated kind of gentleman. I went to see Yennefer at the Met, which is one of Janacek's greatest operas. And the Kostelnica character, the, the, the sort of tragic, evil stepmother character, at the beginning of Act 3 has this whole speech about how, because she's so tragic, she, she can't wait to die, basically, and that living forever is a really horrible thing, which is a bit of a theme in Yanishek operas because as Kathy will remember in the Macropolis case, you know, Emilia Macropolis is like 330 years old and, and, and the whole opera is all about how she realizes that because she took a magic potion and, you know, it's the opera. And and then at the end, she she rapidly ages and dies and welcomes death rather than trying to live for another 338 years. And it's all about this idea and that there's this theme running through Yanishek, which is basically that immortality is much um, worse than it's cracked up to be, which is also a theme running through most vampire novels, I think. Yeah, and I would also jump in and say the fact that it was a woman who said living forever isn't what I actually want. We're going to come back to that because I think I honestly think that living forever is a thing that only men want to do. So it was funny because my wife, who I went to see the opera with, um, when we were walking out of it, said wow, I'm kind of surprised that this early 20th century opera by a guy was so feminist. Um, so, Kathy, yeah. tell us about immortality and, and like, what is it that these men want to do? <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, I'm, I'm wrong about the only men want to do this because um, this Bloomberg um, journalist found a bunch of people in Russia who want to live forever. These are the transhumanists of Russia. Yeah. So they, in particular, I mean, actually, it's not completely fair to say they want to live forever. Some of them want to live forever. But what they're actually doing in Russia and, of course, in the United States is they're cryogenically freezing themselves at death. And the goal of that may or may not be to live forever. Um, the goal is definitely to to reawaken at some time in the future when like science has got has progressed to the point of being able to revive people who have been cryogenically frozen. But some only some of those people say the the ultimate goal is to live forever. Some of them just literally want to see what happens in four four thousand years or something. Maybe yeah, maybe like what I feel like is if I've got eighty years to live, maybe what I want to do is spend my first 
40 years right here, right now, cryogenically freeze myself, uh, wake up in another 200 years and then spend my second 40 years in 200 years time when the world is going to be much richer and happier. Right. And, you know, just to, to be clear, these people aren't all expecting necessarily to be revived in their full bodies. Some of them have ideas, like, for instance, they might have their brain uploaded onto a computer at some point. There's, there's sort of a variety. It's not all just... So it's not all—it's not all just bringing corpses back from the dead. They have sort of uh, a, a lot of different sci-fi visions. It's quite popular in cryogenic circles to freeze only your head because it's considered that your body is just this sort of extraneous organ which you can do without. Yes, and thanks for bringing that up because it—it it allows me to insert magically. Um, some numbers that makes gives us an excuse to talk about this <laughs> stuff in the first place on Slate Money, namely the price that you would have to pay to be cryogenically frozen. These are it's actually called cryonics, and to be clear, it is a um, it's only allowed it's only legal for like people who are already dead. You're not allowed to do this to someone just because they're 40 and want to spend the next 40 years. Although they're trying they're trying to do what did they call it cryogenic euthanasia in in Russia, the first person in, in Switzerland. In Switzerland, okay, so. What the, what actually happens is they sort of like use liquid nitrogen to bring you down to a temperature where it's everything is like frozen and it kind of turned into some kind of glass type structure. And the question of how much it costs. Okay, so there's two different companies in the United States that'll do it, and one of them will co- will cost two hundred thousand dollars, which is a lot, but it also includes like for like just basically your body is kept safe until the moment comes when uh, when they're going to revive you. Um, and that's uh, that's by Alcor. And then there's a cryonics institute, which only charges $28,000 for a whole body preservation. Um, and then, listen, in Russia, it's it's like a, it's actually cheaper than that. So you $36,000 for your whole body, but only $12,000 if you just want to do your head. The, but we have been down this road in the past that people do this kind of pay us up front and we'll preserve you in, in perpetuity thing. And then they get paid up front and then they spend all of the money and then they just kind of throw the bodies away because the bodies aren't going to sue them. Actually, that's really true. And, and in fact, like basically in the 60s and 70s, this kind of got as popular as an idea. And it, 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 it lost a lot of allure when they found out that was actually happening, that they just sort of ran out of liquid nitrogen and were letting people sort of decompose. Although that said, from the point of view of a, someone who might cryogenically preserve himself, which for the record, I will not, I can see how that's just one of the many, many, many risks involved in this. Like, we know that there's probably, even if everything goes according to plan and the cryogenics works perfectly, there's probably only a 1% chance that I'll ever sort of rise from the dead, as it were. So, you know, if there's also a percentage chance that the cryogenics company goes bust and I get, like, tipped into a garbage hit, some somewhere. That's just another risk, which I'm willing willing to take. If you think about, you know, this is sort of a a, ri- a rich man's game, right? This is actually in a lot of ways a, a, a small bet with a potentially big payoff, right? I mean, the chance it's a very very low probability that this will happen. But if it only costs you twelve thousand dollars to do it, and you are a Russian billionaire, I mean, that's that's the equivalent of me going out to lunch, right? So all the risks involved, whether or not it works, whether or not it actually pays off and you get to upload your brain onto a computer and, you know, or <laughs> rise from the dead, it's a, a very small upfront bet with potentially exponential, with, with, with infinite returns in a way, if you actually might get to live forever. And I want to talk a little bit about these returns since we're in the realm of like crazy sci-fi right now. And we're going to just to be clear, bring this back down to earth in a minute, like in the next segment. But since this is the crazy sci-fi, 
segment, there are really big problems with people living forever, like economic problems. Um, that what happens is that it's incredibly bad for inequality. If you're a Russian billionaire or anyone else, if you live forever, and this is also a standard trope in vampire fiction, you just by dint of the power of compound interest, basically, you wind up being incredibly wealthy. And the more people who, and, and in general, people get richer as they get older. And as you have people get, getting to 200 or 300 years old, all of the wealth will start accumulating among the super, super old. And it's going to be very weird and bad for the economy. It's going to be bad for society, too. I mean, uh, one of the major reasons that I don't want anyone else to live forever <laughs> is because, you know, our society changes, evolves, and a large part of how it evolves, and it, I typically think of society evolving and progressing and getting better. Um, and like a large part of that is like old people die, you know, like the old racists will die eventually, and then we, will, we can move on from there. And the idea of not letting those people die is actually really scary to me. And the idea that you can preserve property rights while you're dead you know, that you die and then you're cryogenically frozen and then you wake up and then somehow you still own all of the property which you owned when you died, is it goes against basically all property law. Yeah, I mean, here's here's the main thing, right? It is actually not that hard to produce humans. Like, people do it all the time. It's called having babies. So... For me, it's a it just it just it brings up a thought experiment, which is like under what conditions would we actually need to revive these these like these frozen yeah. brains? What on earth makes us think that we humans of today have more right to be alive in two hundred years than the humans of two hundred years time? Like, I, imagine a society where we're like, oh my god, what we what will we do unless we could revive those old brains? And if we don't have that situation, like, why would we revive those old brains? And the, and there might be a handful of old brains that we want to revive, like, you know, Mozart or Shakespeare or someone, but they're not generally the billionaires who want to live forever. And those are, by the way, those are exactly who they always talk about. They're like, Steve Jobs died, and that was a shame for our civilization. Therefore, I must be frozen. (laughs) (laughs) Let's leave aside whether or not these people actually will live forever, if they will succeed in their quest. Uh, One thing the Bloomberg article talked about that I thought was really interesting is that in the way a lot of kind of funky, low-probability science sometimes does, there might be, you know, interesting side effects to this. There might be other things that come of this research. Like, you know, there a lot of people want to figure out how to freeze specific organs, right, so that they can be held on a shelf, essentially, and just kept in stock for organ donations in the future. I think that was a movie with Ewan McGregor and Scarlett Johansson. I mean, that could also, there could be other sci-fi, other sci-fi-esque problems where you actually just have people, you know, I think it's like never let me go, essentially, you're, you're eventually going to be harvested. But the, I mean, so if we want to go down that route, yeah, that can be dystopian too. But the point being, there, there are actual medical applications to freezing dead people um, that might do a lot of good in the world. Uh, and yes, they do have to deal with, with life extension, but in a more conventional way. Just again, people who need new hearts, who need new livers. Um, and so, if this ends, if, if if this convinces more rich people who wouldn't necessarily be funneling their money elsewhere, uh, because this is sort of a selfish aim to kind of fund this research, maybe that maybe that's a good thing. And that is a perfect segue into our next segment. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. 
Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at applecard.com. Jordan, when you talk about the importance of basic science, one of the th- one of the people that you're sort of weirdly whispering into the ear of is Mark Zuckerberg and his wife Priscilla Chan, who between them have created this thing called the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. And the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative recently announced this thing called Chan Zuckerberg Science, which is a three billion dollar commitment to curing all disease. I'm not even making this up. This is their stated commitment is that they want to cure all disease by the end of the century. In typical Silicon Valley, it's a very humble a- approach to a, a, a really difficult topic. I mean, so this is this is a fascinating project. They are so it's maybe more, maybe less than it sounds. It's three billion dollars over ten years. So you know, if you compare it to the kind of money that's pouring out of the CD- CDC and the NIH and that kind of stuff, it's it's tiny, but it's still billions of dollars. It's still, you know, big on an absolute level. And of that, they're spending $600 million on this thing called the Biohub, which is a research center in San Francisco, where they're going to take people from Stanford and Berkeley and UCSF and bring them all together. And basically, what they do is they look at the world and they say more than half of all of the deaths in the world are caused by four things. One, heart disease. Two, infectious disease. Three, neurological disease. And four, cancer. So let's do some really basic level, basic research um, on trying to prevent or cure or at least manage those four things. And we are going to do absolutely amazing things for the quality of life around the world. You know, two things I really like about this is that they they chose these these ideas, these are the four topics, um, based on how many people die from them every year, which is the right way of doing it. Like like a truly selfish like rich person would have been like, oh, this is like what my friends died of that I miss, right? So they did that right. Um, I don't I don't know how much you know how much their approach to it, which seems to be like pairing medicine scientists with engineers. How like why do they think that's going to work? So one of the things that they have is this idea of a cell atlas, which has been around for a long. Well, the idea has been around for a long time. Um, the you know obviously a couple of decades ago there was this idea of like mapping the human genome, and everyone spent billions of dollars, and eventually they did it, and now you can do it for a couple thousand bucks, and it's like wow, we've mapped the human genome. The cell atlas is a lot more complicated than mapping the human genome, but it's doable, and it's basically. Um, a way of indexing all of the different cell types in the body and the different states that those cells can be in and so that you can design drugs for any given disease because you know all of the cells and all of the states they can be in and you can try and work out how to fix that on a cell-by-cell basis. So that's like, you can see how that's a technology problem at least as much as it is a medicine problem. Or for instance, for the neurological disease, There's talk about using AI software to help with imaging the brain so that you can sort of model this thing and work out how it works and therefore how to fix it. 
They even want, they're even thinking of doing things like continuous bloodstream monitoring. Again, this is a technological problem where you put something in your blood and then it will tell you very, very early if, you know, something is going wrong with what's in your blood. So I, I'm not completely skeptical about the idea that, like, engineers can have a role to play here. Are you skeptical about the amount of money, I mean, that they can actually accomplish this with the amount of money they're putting forward? I mean, you know, put it, you know, $3 billion, uh, the, the comparison a lot of people make is that's less than a tenth of what the annual NIH budget is, you know? Right. And and that's $3 billion over 10 years. So yeah. it's, we're talking about like a hundredth, basically. So in, in that's like, the way I thought, I think about this is that the NIH possibly spends a lot of money on like overhead and things about treating the symptoms of diseases. But these guys are like looking exactly to solve the problem at its base. So I think, yeah, what what this Chan Zuckerberg people will say or, and what Mark Zuckerberg actually did say when he announced this was that our country as a whole, like put NIH funding to one side, but like look at total healthcare funding that we're spending 50 times more on treating sick people than we are on trying to cure diseases so that people don't get sick in the first place. And it seems, from his point of view at least, because he's got this um, very low, what you might call, intergenerational equity discount rate, he values unborn people in 100 years' time as almost as valuable as someone who's alive today. So... If you could spend a billion dollars on treating 10,000 people right now who have a disease, or you can spend that billion dollars and cure the disease so that 2 million people don't get the disease in 60 years' time, he would rather do the, the latter because he reckons that those future lives, many of whom aren't even born yet, are just as valuable as the present lives. Whereas the um, the way that the health system is set up right now is that it's all about present lives rather than unborn future lives. Question. Is this a money-making thing? Are they going to make actually make profit off of this? It's not designed to make money. There is uh, There are various little bits of um, incentives in there to get researchers on board, um, and they retain the rights to a certain amount of IP. It's not all open source and public, but I think it's easy to, you know, quibble with the way that they've designed it. Um, this Chan Zuckerberg initiative is famously not a philanthropy. It's set up as an LLC. It's a, it's a for-profit entity, which gives them a lot more freedom to use different ways of incentivizing researchers rather than just like saying, we're going to pay you a paycheck and you're going to do lots of good work. And maybe that's good that they can keep a certain amount of optionality there. You know, I, I guess they're, they're kind of going back to Felix's point about future generations versus, uh, you know, current generations. There, there is one other aspect to that moral calculus, which is, you know, and you'll hear some public health advocates bring this up, is that they're paying attention to these kind of four disease areas and, and trying to say, okay, over 100 years, we can cure, or, you know, within their daughter's lifetime, we can cure all of them by, again, taking these sort of moonshots, trying to do a cell map. Um, but at the same time, there are very simple or very direct things we can do now to, you know, help millions of people in the developing world who deal with infectious diseases, malaria, things that just kill lots and lots and lots of people right now that we don't need a moonshot for. We just need better implementation of public health strategies. And so there are some people, I think, who are a little bit um, frustrated that they're not going more of a, a Bill Gates route kind of with dealing with things in the here and now. 
I think that's unfair, to be honest, because, I mean, number one, Bill Gates is going the Bill Gates route. The Gates Foundation is even bigger than the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. And um, Bill Gates and people like the One Campaign have proved themselves extremely effective at creating things like Gavi, which is the Global Alliance for Vaccines, which has done amazing jobs at bringing um, HIV AIDS drugs to sub-Saharan Africa and that kind of stuff. Um, these are ultimately the way that these programs work is always that you spend a certain amount of money as a sort of proof of concept and then you schmooze a bunch of people in Davos and you try and get governments to get on board and then you scale them up at a government level. Um, that's not an engineering problem. That's not Zuckerberg's comparative advantage. Honestly, I think Bono is better this than that, this kind of thing than than Mark Zuckerberg is. And you, it's not actually something where having $3 billion particularly helps you. What you really need is having the ear of the various health ministers and the WHO and that kind of thing. So I don't really buy that criticism. But I think there are like very interesting philosophical um, implications of what they're doing here. And I think, you know, because we're, this is the Live Forever episode... Um, one of the things which has been kind of bugging me ever ever since they announced this goal is this idea of, well, if we cure all disease, what are we going to die of? Exactly what I was wondering, yeah. And and it turns out that this isn't – so what I was worried about is that this is just another version of transhumanism sort of in, disguise, in a philanthropic disguise that if we cure all disease, we're all just going to live forever yeah. un until we just get run over by a bus. And I have to say the PR works on me. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm disgusted by the idea of people living forever, but I'm like, oh, I hope they can help cure disease. And like, look, what's wrong with me? There's like, But that's, you know, but that's what we die of, exactly. <laughs> um, and the idea is that, you know, a certain part of this world, the cure-all disease world, the moonshot world, thinks of aging as a disease. Yes. But a lot of it does not. The people working on cancer, the people working on heart disease, you know, the people really, you know, even working on the cell atlas aren't really focused on this idea of aging as a disease. And I think the general idea is basically that the human body is a bit like a MacBook, you know, it's just something which when it reaches a certain age, it's going to break down. And even if there's nothing particularly wrong with it, you have organs. If your organs are 100 years old, they're just going to break down at some point and you're going to die. And that's, you, you know, you can probably specify in some kind of diagnostic manual somewhere like what technical disease it was that caused your organ to fail. But I don't think that's the kind of disease that they're concentrating on. Yet. Yet. <laughs> Until Peter Thiel takes over. Exactly. And And... Yeah, but at the same are time, we, are, you're are, absolutely are, right. Are, this is this is Silicon Valley. Peter Thiel is on Mark Zuckerberg's board, and he's famously into this idea of parabiosis, which is basically vampirism. He wait, had, wait, wait, wait. I don't know anything about this. What are you, you haven't, so, okay. Like, is Peter Thiel weird in yet another way? Oh, yeah. In case you haven't been weirded out enough by Peter Thiel, he's obsessed by these experiments which show that if you take the blood of young mice and you inject that blood into and you, and you use that blood to replace the blood of old mice and the old mice live longer and are healthier. Okay, let me just say that I do not want Peter Thiel to live forever. <laughs> <laughs> but like, just just to tie this up, the question of relative funding and stuff, obviously the NIH is, 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 has much bigger funding and they do support basic science. 
I think one of the things which people are excited about when it comes to the biohub is that you don't have a huge amount of pressure to be publishing um, papers, to be showing that your research is really going somewhere within a sort of three-year period, and that they can spend a lot of time and a lot of money studying things in depth without having to publish, without having to write grant applications to the NIH and that kind of stuff. And if they have that kind of freedom, then maybe that will help them at the margin. I, you know, I can kind of buy I mean, that. Until Facebook, I mean, until the Zuckerberg Foundation like comes up with their own accountability scheme, right? But they're going to do that. Well, they may or may not, because I think one of the interesting things about the new generation of philanthropists is that they like the idea of philanthropic capital as being sort of like venture philanthropy as having like a 90% chance of failing. But if it succeeds, then the world gets transformed. So they're not necessarily going to be um, put off by you know, someone failing for a long time. We will see. We'll see. This episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery which is a podcast company, and it makes a podcast called The Best One Yet. And it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack, who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that saved Abercrombie or which real tech acquisition is like Game of Thrones or the one financial equation that can finally solve climate change? That's the kind of stuff you find on The Best One Yet. So be in the know this year by starting your morning with The Best One Yet every weekday. Follow The Best One Yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business. Jordan. Yes. Let's talk about money because this is actually Slate Money. Yeah, sure. Earlier on, you were talking about our attempts to map the human genome and how this was one of the great successes of the early 2000s and how a lot of people in medicine and policy hoped it would bring about this, you know, kind of new era of very personalized care where we could look at our genetic code for each individual and, and see what cancers, you know, we're predisposed to, if we're predisposed to Alzheimer's or heart disease and come up with very specific uh, treatment regimens. And then on top of that, try to come with, pre uh, you know, preventative care. Um, and, you know, we were kind of talking about this question before the show of how much this would end up costing, right? Is this going to bring down the cost of medical care long term, or is it going to make medicine more expensive for everyone? And the jury's still out on that, but I was reading up on reactions from people, you know, from doctors, from people in the medical field, and there seems to be this consensus that right now, at least, we should expect personalized care to make medicine a lot more expensive if for no other reason than we're at a stage where it's not that refined, we still haven't really figured out the, the, all the nuances of the genome, but we do know enough of it that we can, we can look at people's genetic map and get a vague sense of what they might be in danger, what diseases they might be in danger of eventually uh, ending up with, and they might end up with just a bunch of unnecessary care. <laughs> That's a lot of preemptive medicine that doesn't necessarily preempt anything. So we have a lot of false positives. And I think we, there was an article this week, uh, Jordan, I think you shared it with us, so that there, you, if you take up all these uh, like five different versions of a genetic of genetic tests from five different companies, um, they'll likely show you that you have risks for different diseases and some of them will actually contradict each other. Yeah. And, but in, even if you don't have the false positives, 
the cost of these technologies, like gene sequencing is thousands of dollars now rather than billions that it used to be. So it's come down a lot, but it's still thousands of dollars. Um, the new hot, the new hotness right now is CRISPR, of course, gene editing. And again, everyone's like, this is so cheap. You can do it for like $100,000. And you're like, yeah, but that's not, you know, even if it comes down, when everyone starts editing their own genes and sequencing their own genes and everything starts becoming personalized Wait, can and you technological. Say more about gene editing? I didn't even know that we did that. What does that mean? So, yeah, is, without is going that before before birth, or is that no, no? This is after. This is when you know you have this genes, and th- there's this woman called Jennifer Doudner in Berkeley who invented this process called CRISPR, C R I S P R, and it allows you to go in and take out your genes and fiddle around with them and take out the thing which is bad and put it back in and fix you that way. Wow. Yeah. What kind of application does this have? It has a million applications, but mostly medical. And there are definitely people who are talking in kind of crazy eugenic terms in places like Russia. The great thing or the bad thing about CRISPR is that it is really quite cheap and easy. Anyone can do it. The technology is not difficult. So even if there's a bunch of bioethicists in the United States who are all over preventing people from using it to, you know, try and create some kind of ubermensch, that doesn't mean that people aren't going to be able to do that in the rest of the planet. But it is, from a purely medical perspective, it does create layers of expense and complexity. And I guess my question for Jordan is, as all of these technologies come on stream, um, what happens to the cost of healthcare, which is already like high? Does it just get crazily higher? Do we wind up in an economy where fifty percent of the economy is healthcare? Well, I, you know, it depends. I think on a, on a lot of different factors, right? You know, you you look at a system like, and it, it, a lot of it depends on how your healthcare system is set up, right? Like you look at the U.S., where essentially you can have insurers decide. And we're not going to cover, you know, all this genetic mapping, all this genetic testing. We don't think the payoff is enough. You still might have a situation where people are going and saying, you know what, I'll pay a few thousand dollars to go and, you know, take this test and see what I'm predisposed to get, what disease is supposedly going to kill me down the line. And then once they have those results, they can say, oh, well, I'm now going to seek all these treatments and, and try to, you know, do everything in my power to avoid whatever, you know, whatever congestive heart failure in the future. Um, and that could eventually, and, you know, maybe that person actually does, ha- maybe that person actually does take care of better care of themselves and it brings down health costs in the future, or maybe they just go and seek a bunch of unnecessary care. And if you have a bunch of people seeking unnecessary care because of these tests, then yeah, it drives up the cost, it drives up costs for everyone. Because and, and it's not just the tests, it's also the treatments, when the treatments well, exactly. are personalized. Absolutely. It's, well, and, you know, it, 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 it is, it's not the tests. Like, that's, that's exactly the point. It's the stuff that you do after the tests. You know, you can, you can try to have a national health care system. You know, if you have universal health care, say, we're not going to pay for CRISPR, or we're not going to pay for these, you know, uh, these, you know, to have each and every individual have their uh, genetic, you know, their, their genome sequenced. But it's harder to stop them from going and doing all the stuff afterwards. No, um, I mean, I think we see, I think it's, Worse than that, like the point of gene editing and CRISPR is not just to diagnose problems or potential problems, it's actually to treat them. So if I don't take any test, but I just walk into the doctor one day and I'm symptomatic and I have some problem, they can then turn around and say, oh, we 
can probably treat this once we sequence your genome and then use CRISPR to edit your genes. It goes the other way as well. Yeah, I mean, you can have a situation like that. And so actually, when I think about this, one possibility is that if you have a country that doesn't have a, a large private insurance system, it has more of a, you know, again, an NHS or something like that, you, you can actually see this kind of contributing to the bifurcation of, of the healthcare system, right? You can see if, if these tests and, and these approaches don't, on average, have huge returns for the healthcare system, and so the government doesn't really want to pay for them, but individuals, like really wealthy individuals, still want this kind of care, you can see more of them kind of trying to move off and get their own private insurance, have their, you know, pay for their own sort of uh, concierge healthcare. Type so, but what happens if they do have high returns? That's, that's the real question which I have. What happens if there genuinely is this healthcare revolution that we were promised 20 years ago with the sequencing of the genome and hasn't arrived yet? But what happens if it, if and when it does arrive? And that a bunch of brand new, extremely expensive technologies really can make us a lot healthier. The hope a lot of people have is that you pay a lot up front with these technologies and then you pay less in the future from these chronic diseases, from, from the, this end of life care, these end of life care issues. Um, so, you know, I, I guess that, that's the optimistic case, right? That you edit your genes now for tens of thousands of dollars, but it prevents the insurer from having to pay tens of thousands of dollars, you know, a million dollars later on down the line taking care of you when you're old and frail. So, I mean, there is, there is this optimistic case. It's just that I think a lot of people believe it, at this point we're sort of, um, you know, in this intermediate phase where the technology isn't that great yet. Um, we still are, and we're still understanding a lot of the basic, or trying to understand a lot of the basic science. And we're not going to get, it, it's not clear when we're going to get past that point. So, so basically, start- best case scenario is rich people have eugenics. <laughs> I'm just summing I mean, up here. Rich yeah, people I mean, will live in a, a perfect world with perfect children and like they have access to eugenics. I, I, you see, my, you see, Jordan has this scenario where, where this is all used in a sort of preventative way. And I feel like the more likely scenario is that it's going to be used to cure diseases and treat symptoms much more than it's going to be used to prevent stuff and that people are going to be turning up with, you know, cancer and saying, hey, there's a way of curing this cancer. It will cost a million dollars because it's all going to have to get personalized and people are going to find it very hard to say, no, we're not going to spend a million dollars on curing your cancer just because it's too expensive. So my friend Maki Inata actually got stage four lung cancer and she had this weird gene that they said, oh, wait, we have a medicine that we think will work with this weird gene, Asian people with lung cancer, and it worked. But it was just very expensive. So I think that's the – and everybody touts it as like a wonderful example of personalized medicine, and it is, of course, and she's my friend. But I think you're right. That, that that kind of thing, if it happens on a large scale, could be very, very expensive indeed. So that that's sort of genetic pharmacology, and that's in – in a way, actually, that's one of the most promising places we are. It's, it's looking at your genes and figuring out which medicines are going to – you're going to interact best with, um, react best to. Uh, and you see a lot of this actually in, in psychopharmacology too. People are trying to figure out like which – you know, what your genes say about how to cure your depression kind of stuff. And weirdly, I'm a little bit more optimistic about that because the issue there is more, you know, uh, pharmaceutical prices, right? Like it's it's more the the price of the actual treatment once they've identified the problem. And, you know, pharmaceutical prices are hard, treatment prices are hard, but you you can figure out ways to deal with them. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. 
I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, I think that's enough of vampires (laughs) living forever. Um, let's have a numbers round, people. I got a great number. What, what's your number? 56. So my husband and I this morning were just shooting the shit about how excited we are that the Cubbies won. Oh, and this is sports ball. <laughs> right. I forgot that you don't even know the word baseball. <laughs> um, yeah. So it was a really, obviously, very exciting moment. And if you're, by the way. It was the first time that the team had won since the last time the team won. Oh, my God. Yes. 108 years drought. 108 years. And we were wondering, well, is that really that rare? Statistically speaking, isn't that just what you'd expect? 56% chance that there will be one team out of 30. There are currently 30 Major League Baseball teams um, that will go for a drought of 108 years. That's my number. We've, we calculated that, assuming that it's random. It's not completely random. So, in and, fact, And because it's not completely random, in fact, the probability is higher that's than 56%. Right. That's right, because there'll be good teams that do it more often. So actually, in, and I should mention, though, that in, from, the, the, from 1920 to 1960, there were only 16 teams. So this, this number is actually only going forward. So, But for, if, if we have another 108 years of Major League Baseball, we should expect to see this. And as the sports fan, Kathy? Yeah. There are 30 Major League Baseball teams. Yes. Which team do you think is most likely to be the one that doesn't win for the next 108 years? <laughs> I, won't, I won't name names. <laughs> let, let it be the Mets. <laughs> Jordan, what's your number? My number is 32. Uh, 32. That is how many minutes. And this, is, this is election related, but it's, it's close to my heart and makes me kind of sad. That is how many minutes the major networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC, have devoted to policy coverage this year, uh, according to the Tyndall Report on their nightly newscasts. Uh, That is as opposed to 114 minutes in 2012 and 220 minutes in 2008, uh, year-to-date at this point. Uh, So when you talk about how there's been no discussion of policy during this election, uh, at least on uh, by the, you know, by television, on television, it's we, we have some math to back that up. Wow. It's, it's really true. I want to cry. Yeah. Um, and my number, I have to, since we're talking about Peter Thiel, um, my number is 31 million, which is the number of dollars that Gorka Media Group settled with Hulk Hogan for. Oh, so yeah. that lawsuit is now over. Gorka Media Group is the bankrupt entity which um, sold off all of its, or nearly all of its assets to my company, Univision. Um, But they still had this $145 million judgment against them, but they have settled that for $31 million. Um, There was a couple of other lawsuits which they settled at the same time for less than a million dollars each. A lot of that money is going to this very evil lawyer in California called Charles Harder, who is bankrolled by Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel. So there's the there's the Peter Thiel connection. Um, it does leave probably a little bit of money left over for various other Gorka creditors, preferred shareholders and the like. So I hope that this is um, 
there's a little silver lining to this, but the part of the really sad thing is that three posts are going to have to come down from Gorka.com. They're having to unpublish them, even though they were entirely true. Mm. Yep. Anyway, on which depressing note, Mr. Peter Deal, <laughs> beyond the numbers round, there's yep. something even more fabulous so that we need exciting. to end this on. What are you doing? And I'm talking... I'm, I'm talking here to you, dear listeners, because I know what I'm doing, and I know what Jordan's doing, and I know what Kathy's doing on Thursday, December the 15th. What are you doing? And are you going to be in New York City? Because if you are, Kathy, what are we going to be doing? We're going to be doing a live craft beer episode, and we really want you guys to come. It's going to be in Union Hall in Brooklyn. URL for buying tickets is in the show notes. So if you're a Slate Plus member... Click on that and get 30% off the tickets. I'm pretty sure they're going to go very fast. Yeah. So buy your tickets now. Um, even if you can't come, send us an email. The email address, as you know, is always slatemoney at slate.com. And talk to us a little bit about not only what you want us to talk about in this show, but also who we should bring on who we should be talking to on stage. And very specifically, these are people who need to be able to be in Brooklyn on December the 15th. And ideal, and we'd love some actual brewers, like people who make beer and struggle with the econ- economics of it or succeed with the economics of it. And women would be great. And, you know, people who will be, do- will be willing to do it for free. <laughs> that would be great. We, we might give them a free beer. <laughs> Come drink beer with us. Come drink beer with us. It's going to be uh, it's going to be a weird and wonderful, fun craft beer episode, which will actually be an episode of Slate Money um, later this year if you can't make it in person. So that's going to be fun. Um, subscribe to Slate Money and you will hear that Slate Money craft beer episode at some point in the future. Um, but for the time being, leave us a review. Tell all your friends about us and send lots of thanks to Virilyn Williams who produced us today, Steve Lichtein, Andy Bowers, the executive producers and check out all of the rest of the Panoply podcasts on iTunes.com slash Panoply. So we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.